This is Brian Felt, the director of athletics at Seton Hall University, and you are listening to Left Coast Pirates. Let's go Pirates. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to this week's edition of Left Coast Pirates. It is June 16th. 2021 and we're in the midst of the summer session interview series mikey how you doing this evening where you been tommy how you doing mikey we took an extended break by accident i mean you know it's been almost two months since we interviewed tyler powell we had an interview that we were planning to release last month we didn't finish it with our guest we're trying to pull him back on times haven't been working but we're trying to get it out there but tonight we got a special one special one he's back for his third time <laughs> we, is it? no I, it, we're it's never, always we're... a special event when the ad shows up oh i'm only teasing of course brian's a special guest look there's, there's a lot of topics we got to cover it was a crazy year getting through the pandemic there's a lot of craziness that's still on the horizon moving forward into the following season you got the transfer changes you got name image and likeness law rules that are being passed around in you know in congress there's a lot of a landscape for seton hall upcoming that is just a real unknown and hey we're gonna have to ask it what the heck is going on with the practice facility <laughs> we ask that every year mike do we really well, get an answer until it's done i'm gonna keep asking i'm sorry it's just the way it's gonna be all right, man. Well, let's bring him in. He is the Seton Hall University Athletic Director and three-time visitor to the Left Coast Pirates. Please welcome back Brian Felt. Brian, how are you this evening? I'm doing great, Tom. Good to be with both you and Mike here. How are you guys doing? Well, good to have you on again, Brian. Hope all is well with you and the family. Uh, doing great. Thank you, guys. Hope the same with you. Uh, absolutely. All right. So the last time you joined the show, we're talking about how COVID-19 suddenly derailed a promising men's basketball season. But more importantly, we discussed how it was impacting the lives of the Seton Hall community. You know, it's family, it's friends. And now it's almost one full year later. And thankfully, you know, it appears like there's going to be some light to the end of the tunnel with all of this. How do you look uh, back yeah. and begin to take inventory of it all? Oh, my gosh. I mean, yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, couldn't be proud of our alma mater. Uh, I thought Seton Hall, uh, you know, being part of on the inner side and in inner workings of the whole thing, um, we were really a leader in a lot of the ways we dealt with COVID as a university, as a higher, you know, higher education and in terms of higher education and how we brought our students back. Uh, we offered the hybrid, you know, opportunity and uh, our athletes were back 
you know, we, we trained the whole fall. We couldn't compete until basketball. Um, you know, our staff, you know, we, we all went through a ton. I mean, the amount of hurdles and challenges and, and different things, we, you know, it was amazing. But we got through it. Uh, we came out the other side. You know, everybody got to have a season. Um, and our university has been has really is, is very strong coming out of a pandemic. So um, I look back on it and just say to myself, I hope to God we never have to do this again. But I look back on it and say, you know what? Uh, this is what it's all about here at Seton Hall. We were able to come together and get through it. Uh, and, you know, I, you look around the, the higher education landscape and some didn't or some are coming through it with a lot of, you know, a lot of issues, you know, and, and um, we have some strong enrollment numbers coming up for the fall. So as a school, and this is, you know, that's probably the most important thing. That's how we all stay alive here in this, in this world and um, is, is enrollment. So um, really, really just impressed with uh with how we did it and certainly dr nair our president deserves a, a great deal of credit for being the leader through this whole thing you know one of the things that we said was a big success this year was that we were actually able to finish the, the season up completely and we were real yeah. happy that we didn't have any kind of negative outside of the one pause we didn't have any negative effects mm -hmm. coming from the virus but you know, as we focus on the men's team, we'd be remiss that if we didn't mention the success of other Seton Hall University teams under your watch. I mean, it seemed like your first year you come in, you win a Big East men's title. The second year you come in and all of a sudden the men's soccer team is blowing up. It was such a feel good story on campus. They finished 10, two and four. They won the Big East tournament title for the first time since 1991 secured an overall six seed in the tur in the NCAA tournament and reached the Elite Eight. Take a moment and talk about the monumental job Andreas Lindbergh did in turning around a program that had been winless as, as recently as 2015. Oh, you know, talk about a guest you should have on. If, I know you're not a soccer podcaster per se, but this guy, I mean, I, Coach uh, Lindbergh, um, I, I just absolutely, we're blessed to have him at Seton Hall. Uh, an absolutely extraordinary human being. Um, wonderful to work with, uh, a, a tremendous temperament, came in uh, from the get-go. He was like, listen, I'm gonna build a program here. Uh, it's gonna be a program that wins on a consistent basis. I'm, I know how I'm gonna do it. You know, he was he's a, a sharp guy, uh, a tremendous soccer mind, surrounds himself with good people, has a great staff. Um, and just, it was an absolute, it was uh, it was probably the highlight of the year in, in so many ways because it unified us internally as a department. We, you know, this is what we want. This is what we all work for. We want our kids to be successful, and we have had success in a lot of our sports. And to see a sport that you know has, has a good history and tradition to see the hall. You know, we you know we were there during some years that were pretty good, and and years in the eighties and the nineties, and you know, watching that run and knowing that group of, of young men that they are, and and. and it was extraordinary. I mean, it really, really was. And it was, a, it was so much fun. Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a bit of a soccer guy. I love soccer. It's my sport when I, when I played and uh, the way that team came together was absolutely fantastic and really was just kind of the silver lining of what was a long, tough year. Uh, so it was awesome. Did you get a chance to watch live the team advance on penalty kick seven, six versus Virginia tech? I was there. I had video on my phone. I was there for the whole thing. So, it so was absolutely insane. So what's more, what's more nerve wracking watching them go shot for shot and sudden death or having to watch the men's basketball team try to ice the game from the free throw line. Either one. I gotta be honest. They're both brutal. <laughs> uh, I have been through some brutal ones on the, on the basketball side. That was as intense as it gets though. Um, and then when you, and I'm standing right, I was actually standing right at that goal. I was like really just 
I was probably at the 18, standing there along the fence. And when I watch Andreas Nota, and I'm and I'm standing with Jay Judge, who is our senior associate AD for fundraising for Pirate Blue, and I go, "What is he doing? Is he what's he yelling to the bench?" I'm trying. I'm like, "Is he taking the shot?" And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm, grab, I'm grabbing Jay by the shoulder. I'm like, "He's taking the shot." I'm like, "This is awesome." And it was it was like it was just why like. Soccer, a lot of people get soccer bad knock. It doesn't have that kind of thrill, but that moment was awesome. It was awesome. <laughs> well, you know, that wasn't the only team that had some success. I think the women's team need a lot of credit, especially through all the issues that they went through. I mean, they had to pause three times. They were and they still were able to finish fourteen and seven, good for third place in the Big East, and had three all-conference performers in Desiree Elmore, Lauren Park Lane, and transfer Andra Espinosa-Hunter. With the addition of three impact transfers already, what do you think the ceiling is for Tony's squad this coming year? I'm excited for them this year. I mean, I gotta be honest, that was a fun year to watch. That's a fun team to watch. You know, anybody takes time to watch our women's team last year. They, and, and we did, we had a lot of people really start to, we had a couple games as we went towards that end of the regular season for us was fantastic. We had a bunch of, uh, I think the Villanova game and the DePaul game were both on TV. And then I, even our UConn game, I think we went through a, th- a stretch. We had three or four games nationally televised. I think even the St. John's game. St. John's was, yeah. St. Yeah, that's right. And, it, and the St. John's game, we played phenomenal. The Villanova game was just an absolutely great basketball game. We pulled it out. So those are some big wins. And we were a fun team to watch. Andra really helped come in and change the dynamic of that group. Uh, I think Tony would tell you the same thing. She could probably coach the team. Uh, <laughs> that's how, that's just, that's her maturity. That's just who she is. Like she's got this, this aura around her. She's incredibly, one of the most confident student athletes I've ever been around. I mean, she has actually visited me in my office. We've had great conversation. I, I mean, I can talk to her all day. She's a, a tremendous young woman. And uh, she's brought a real great calming presence to that group. Lauren Park Lane as well, to see her growth in just a year. Uh, and she plays with the fire. I mean, I love the way she plays. Like, you've got a really good dynamic on that squad. Very excited for what they can do this year. They really, they honestly can be very, very good. They're going to have some new pieces. They're going to have to fit in there and work. And that's always, you know, that's always a challenge. But um, I, I got a lot of confidence in this group right now, especially with, the, with those two, Lauren Park Lane and Andra, you know, kind of at the guard spots. All right. So as uplifting as the men's performance was and the horizon for potential for the women's teams is, the Seton Hall community was struck with some sad news recently. Larry Keating passed away in May mm-hmm. at the age of 76. He was best known to us at Seton Hall for being the athletic director from 85 to 97. I mean, during that time, they they make their first NCAA tournament. They make it to the Final Four. They achieve numerous postseason successes. And he was even inducted into the Seton Hall Hall of Fame as recently as 2019. Uh, But what I found interesting was he's also known for being a very loyal individual. He never wanted, or excuse me, he never wavered under the pressure to let PJ go. And there was like, as Tom was telling me, there was, you know, campaigns on campus to let PJ go. I don't think anybody can even fathom that that took place if you're the younger generation. But he did. There was a petition for it. There was a petition. There are are really loyal Seton Hall supporters that I know that signed that petition. And they they still say it's probably one of the worst things they ever did in their lives. (laughs) But, But that loyalty continued. He ultimately resigned in 1997 after he refused to fire George Blaney. Now, Keaton was even later talking to the Asbury Park Press during the Hall of Fame ceremony and said, hey, had I fired Blaney, I think to this day I'd still be the AD at Seton Hall. I love the place. I love the job. I love the Big East, but I don't have any regrets about what I did. 
Uh, so how did Larry Keaton help pave the way for making Seton Hall and the job that you currently have such a prominent role? Well, Larry, Larry was, um, Larry's known for a lot of things. I mean, he's one of the great schedulers in college basketball. I mean, he, he, I could tell you when I was in the Mac, he had retired from Kansas and we consulted with Larry. Uh, on some of our scheduling, you know, we were trying to figure out some scheduling things and, and, and ESPN and our, our deal we had when I was at the Mac and Larry was a great, uh, great resource for us. I think he was so well known among so many within the collegiate athletic business. Um, I, I'll be honest with you, I was a student worker in the athletic department when Larry was AD. And I have amazing memories of the times that Larry's always give me as a student who was just like, I was just a knucklehead kid working in, you know, the sports information office. But Larry was, um, I, I learned a lot from Larry from a very, you know, a distant view. But I mean, just the way that I would see him give time to people, um, always the way he just, he showed a great care for student athletes. And he really kind of set that culture in motion for our department. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's incredibly sad to lose Larry. Uh, but as I've thought about him a lot lately, um, I've thought about how much he's impacted not only my career a little bit in my in my early stages, but how much he's just impacted all of the current student athletes. Because a lot of the things that he kind of helped set in terms of our culture are still there today. And um, yeah, just an extraordinary guy. Uh, great family too. I knew his son Kerry, he was a Seton Hall guy. Um, so yeah, just just all around good people. Uh, I think next week actually I'll be in New York City. He has they're doing a memorial for him in the city uh, that I'm going to attend. And um, yeah, we'll all we'll miss Larry. He was a he just had, well his presence will always be felt. All right, let, let's stay more basketball-related topics now. So I feel like the next question has become a bit of a kind of broken record. It seems like every time you come on the show, we kind of just have to ask you this question and kind of get oh, it man. out of the way. So I, I got to do it. What can you tell us about the current renovation updates to Walsh? But most importantly, when does the university intend to move forward with the new men's basketball practice right. facility? Let's go. Okay, first, let's take Walsh. Because we all know Walsh. I think I've answered this question a hundred times, right? But – it's it's coming along great, and and you can follow the we've put in you know we put pictures on Twitter. I think we just did the floor pictures yesterday. Just got delivered. It's coming along beautifully. Center hung scoreboards up. Uh, you know the, you know they've done some painting already. They got some seats coming to get in soon. Video boards are up alongside the stage, so it's it's really gonna look great. It should be done by September one. I got to knock on wood because it is construction, so God only knows. But uh, we expect everything to kind of be you know in working order and ready to roll. Um, so that's coming along fantastic will be done uh our hope is to you know we'll have a volleyball season there women's basketball season there and as usual host a men's basketball game or two there uh so i'm excited for people to come see it um specifically on uh the university day weekend that they always host we're going to try and do a bunch of things to make sure people can get in and see walsh and the new renovation but the real question the real thing you want to talk about um it's 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 in it's going very very well right now we have been in kind of like a silent fundraising phase, kind of getting some real good stakeholders involved in what we're trying to do. That has gone very, very well. Uh, and at the same time, we've been in the process of, you know, we had some renderings done right before I had gotten here. There were some things that they had worked on an architect with. Um, in conversations with you in kind of my area, we, we really said, listen, like, we'd like to kind of go back and, and look at a couple of different ideas with the play, with the, the, the original, original renderings. We engage with a new architect. That is currently what we're doing now. We had to go through a whole process to kind of select the right company to work on the project. We should have new renderings that are going to be public ready, I, I expect, by late fall. Uh, and that will really be when I think we can start to blow it open and really kind of start to share um, what we're looking at. And I do believe that in the next... I'm going to, I'm going to try and be really conservative on this because I'm, I'm sometimes too aggressive. It'll get me in trouble. 
I would, I would like to think that within the next two years, we're breaking, you know, shovels in the ground and we're going here. And it's really these last six months specifically have really come a long way uh, to, to making this a reality. So blow it out. We're going to get rid of Aquinas, knock down the school of business and just put it right there on the back end of the green, right? Is that what we're talking about? No, we're no. going to we're going to buy Underhill Field Man, back. What are you talking about, Mike? By the way, Aquinas is not what it used to be. I lived in Aquinas. Nobody wanted to live in Aquinas. Now it's called, is... called the dungeon movie. I, I lived in the basement. It was awful. <laughs> but yet still, it's still some of the greatest memories I have in my life. But um, no, Aquinas now they redid Aquinas. It's beautiful. Okay, all right. They put an extra floor on top. It's it's where all the. Uh, uh, honor students get to live. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. Um, anyway. I'm sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't get to fly back east like Tom does every year to hang out with yeah, Gazelle yeah, well, and hey, you know. campus stores. They put the all smart right. kids all the way on the back end of campus so they don't get into trouble. I love it. I got to give them the nicer dig. <laughs> um, they earned it. So, uh, no, so we're looking right now going out the back of the building a little bit, out the back of the field house. Um, we've got some space there. We can think we can make it work. Um, and make it really an attractive space that uh, and we're trying to find ways to kind of connect it to the front of the building. So we're we're, we're kind of still tinkering around with some of this, the logistics of it, but I, I trust me, much more details to come. And and uh, I can't wait till I can share, we can share all of the actual renderings and plans with the public. Very cool. All right. Now that we got that out of the way, uh, a more intriguing topic for me is this name, image, and likeness thing that's going around, right? It's become a real hot button topic in college basketball. And it seems that it's inevitable. It's it's ultimately going to become a part of the landscape, but to what extent we just don't know yet. To me, how does Seton Hall prepare for the impact of this change, you know, in in the long term? Is it going to be a positive for them? Is it going to be a negative for the school? Are you going to hire a faculty member to help kind of manage, you know, the issue like other universities have? Are you going to counsel and educate the students on how to manage their money that they earn? I mean, there's just so many different ways. We can, we can do a this. whole podcast on this. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is one of the most, I mean, again, think, talk about the, the business of college athletics. Talk about something that has, I mean, and everything's changed in this world so much over the years, but this is, I mean, transformative change in college athletics is, I mean, is happening right in front of us in these, you know, at this current time. I mean, you talk name, image, and likeness. You talk the issues that are out there with gender equality. Um, you know, there's so many different things affecting college athletics right now. Um, and, you know what? I'm I'm not one of those people that looks at them as as threats to our business. I, I think we have to find ways to make them opportunities, uh, and that's really been the focus that we have in our department. Uh, I will say that we are fortunate. We have Val Ackerman as our commissioner, who has really been at the forefront of the NIL debate. Uh, she led the you know she led the committee that the NCAA put together. Uh, she's done a tremendous job of keeping all of us in the Big East up to date on on latest legislations and all that kind of stuff. Because as you sit there and try and read these. You know these different proposals from state to state. It, it your head will spin. Uh, and we we have biweekly meetings as ads, and we go over all this kind of um, this information so that we can be prepared. And as a conference, we're, we're looking at how we can do that conference wide. And as a university, we're looking and we're planning on how we can be prepared for this as a, as an athletic department. Um, I have a tremendous compliance staff in our department who have been absolutely fantastic they are ahead of this every step of the way we've been engaging with a lot of companies uh, there's a lot of outside service providers that are really uh making their rounds and if you look at a lot of schools they either hire one or they're engaging with them and we've been engaging with a lot of them to kind of find out you know is this going to be a good idea should that you know should we, we first of all nil is happening by the way to go back to your own statement it is it's absolutely happening um and we all have to be real you know the realization is that listen Anything that we can have a normal student do, if they can go and profit from, you know, their art or their, you know, whatever it might be on social media, 
the student athlete should have that same opportunity. That's the, that's the absolute foundation of what we're talking about here. But there's all these gray areas because when you're a student athlete, you have a lot of there's a lot of different things. I mean, you're talking about scholarships, you're talking about the access you're going to have and the, the to the public in terms of the external platform you get. So what we've done is we've engaged a lot of these companies to kind of figure out which one's going to really fit best with us to advise us on some of these things. I think it's going to be important to have some outside engagement in that regard. Uh, there are a couple of companies that concern me because we've engaged a lot of them that I think are doing things that are against the actual um, the actual concept of what name image and likes is supposed to be. You know, I think there's some things uh, that I think we still need to figure out um, as we learn about name image and likeness and the NCA still has to kind of provide some of that guidance. So that's what we're still, that's why I'm hesitant to actually name a company that we're going to partner with. I think we're still waiting to kind of figure out where is that going to fall and who is going to be the best partner, but we've engaged uh, it's over 20. I mean, the amount of people out there right now making this a business for their, uh, for their firm is, is pretty extensive. So we're doing a lot of that preparation, a lot of education, really most importantly on anything else, it's going to be education, education. How can we educate our student athletes on how this is going to work? How can we educate our coaches and our staffs how this is going to work? And then how is it going to be an advantage for us in the recruiting world? Because at the end of the day, if you look at everybody, what everybody's doing and all of the larger schools and the football side of things and how they're positioning themselves, because it's going to be a, it's going to be a way to look at it, right? It's, it's how's it benefit in recruiting? You know, we have to be prepared for that. Uh, so we spent a lot of time educating ourselves, as I said, engaging with outside firms. And I think we're going to be prepared. Uh, we have student athletes who are very savvy already, and we engage with them on a, on a daily basis, answering their questions. We talk to our student athletes about this already, so they're prepared. Uh, and we're watching this closely because in the next, you know, I think the, there's another Senate hearing coming up. So, um, you know, I think the worst, the, the one of the most difficult things right now, and I'm being very long-winded here because there's so much with this, but I'm trying to kind of, I guess kind of gather as best I can is these state to state laws, they concern every athletic director in the country. Uh, I'd be, you know, nobody will tell you different. I mean, it's to say that Georgia now will have a rule and California and Florida will have it that you can do this, but in New Jersey, we don't have it yet. You know, are we going to be at a disadvantage? We've got to have some sort of national landscape on this where, where it's a, and that's where the NCAA really has to kind of um, continue its work to make sure that happens. But that's, that's probably one of the biggest things we're watching. Okay. So you touched on recruiting a little bit. Do you ultimately see this as a recruiting tool that larger power five schools with, you know, wealthy alumni bases, you know, the Texases and those kind of places that they can use this to leverage uh, this into an insurmountable advantage for them? Well, I think I think we have to be careful on how how that's done, because I think that's going to become part of the, the NIL law, if you will, is, is how that really is, how that works. But I mean, we can read between the lines and I'm reading everything there is on it. And I see how every school is positioning themselves specifically in the football five, by the way, Tom, let's get that correct. We never, I never called them the power five, it's power six football five. Um, just so we're clear. So on the football five side of things, as I watch and I see how they're positioning themselves, the Clemson's and you know, everybody else, obviously, there is a recruiting advantage of the way that they're going to position it because they're going to tell students, listen, we've hired X and they're going to be able to provide you X and this is now you know how you can utilize your NIL through this our relationships. Yeah, that's a that's that's a part of it in the long run, no doubt about it. Um, it it's going to affect every school differently. I think you know certainly a football is going to get a little bit of a different attention, but I think you're talking to me the biggest impact it will have on us. Yeah, we have the Miles Powell's of the world that we've had, and we'll have more you know situations in the basketball side. I think it's all those student athletes that have just become these influencers. That's that's where it's that. People in general, in my opinion, will always gravitate to what's easiest, right? And students know social media better than anybody. 
and they'll go on their Instagrams and they'll become influencers because it's super easy to do for anybody now. My son is in high school. He's got buddies that do this for like, they're making more money than, you know, any 16 year old I know on Instagram. It's just who they are. It's who these kids are. So that's where I think NIL is really going to be influential, specifically at a school like at our size and with our, you know, um, kind of environment. So we're really talking about that a lot and how can we educate them on how, what you can, what you can do, what you can't do. Um, they, the phrase that the NCA uses all the time is guardrails. How do we stay within those guardrails? Um, because, you know, the last thing anybody wants to do is, is, is make a misstep with this kind of thing. So we're being careful. Uh, I think to your question, yeah, I think everything's going to have a recruiting kind of tone to it. Uh, I think we'd be crazy not to admit that. And then how can we position ourselves so that it benefits us? Ryan, football five, power five, whatever the heck you want to call it. Football five. Power six. You mentioned Clemson. Have you seen the facility that they built? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Come yeah. on. It's, it's not a level playing field, no matter how no. you want to slice and dice it. No, when it comes to that, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. All right. Let's stop talking about this stuff. Let's bring it to something more tangible. We bring in the AD. We want a state of the union of the men's basketball program. Just to quickly recap, the team finished 14 and 13 overall, 10 and 9 in Big East play, good for fourth, tied with St. John's. But it missed the NCAA tournament for the first time since the end of 2014-15. Now, like as I mentioned earlier, you know, we had a lot of discussion saying just completing the season was a huge success. But was it the program not making it to the tournament for the first time in six years considered falling short of expectations, Brian? Uh, there's no question we were disappointed. Uh, I mean, Kevin and I have recapped the season over and over. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I think we, you know, we were at a point where I think starting the season, you know, we said to ourselves, listen, there's a little bit of rebuilding going on here in this year. We certainly lost our main scorer. We lost some key pieces with Quincy and and and, and Roe. Um, that's Roe behind me, by the way, over here. That's my, my was my son's favorite player. Uh, but, um, you know, those, those were key guys that we lost in that lineup. So, I mean, we, we never, we always stepped short of saying it was a complete rebuilding. It didn't feel that way. We, we weren't going into it that way. But we knew we were going to have a bit of a challenge to get back to an NCAA tournament. But as the years started going along, and certainly we had COVID, so we were dealing with all kinds of different challenges. Uh, you know, Kevin and I, you know, Kevin was saying, listen, I, you know, this team's gelling. This team's at a place where I think, you know, we're, we're definitely, you know, we're in a good spot. And he challenged him early. Um, I think if you asked Kevin, he'd probably say, you know, that was some tough decisions and maybe we maybe we did a little too much because we, we played a tough non-conference and in a tight time frame. Um but I think that's what he thought his guys needed. That's what, how they thought they would respond. If you ask his guys, they loved it. They, that's what they wanted to. They just wanted to play. They wanted to get out there and keep playing games. That was the best thing for them. Uh, but, yeah, we had some we had some tough losses. We had some games I think we felt short where I thought, thought we should have probably pulled them out. Um, but uh, at the end of the year, yeah, we were disappointed we didn't make it. Um, if I give you the State of the Union kind of statements and that kind of thing, I think, I think what Kevin's done is, is he's – He's already putting together another team that he feels incredibly strong is going to get back to that tournament again. You know, there was no, you know, it was okay. I'm retooling. I saw what our, our, our blemishes were this year. I'm going to address them. I'm going to go out and hit the transfer market. I got three great freshmen coming in. Um, you know, I brought back, he's bringing back really two guys, for, you know, that can stay an extra year that I think he thinks will help. Um, so he's got himself a, a crew he really feels very strong about. He feels it's a top half of the Big East without question kind of program. Uh, if not a top three or four. And, um, 
You know, so I think I, I'll, fall, I'll, stop, I'll stop short of saying calling it a misstep. It was a disappointment. I think that we didn't make it. I thought we were all we were in a position to do so, and we didn't certainly finish out the season very strong. Um, but uh, we're very confident we can get back there right away. Um, there's no one looking to take take that as an excuse to say we're we're gonna have to rebuild. It's just it's just a phrase we're not using. Well, you know, when we had you on last, it was about a year ago, and one of the last things we said was that we really hope that the team can stay healthy throughout this entire pandemic. And the team ended up being one of the first programs nationally to have to pause due to COVID-19. And luckily, it happened right at the start of the season, so it kind of just extended it. But, you know, there was plenty of talk about how quarantining had an effect on individuals, both physically and mentally. Can you share from your perspective uh, how much of an impact that initial pause had on the players and coaches trying to get that season kicked off? I I, I never want to try and dramatize this, but it was incredibly significant. Uh, it, it really was. And, I, and I, I'll and i be one of those people that I was like, you know what, guys, you're going to go in, you'll be fine. You know, we'll get you some workouts figured out. And I, I probably wasn't realizing just how much of an impact it would have. And I, I can tell you that because I saw it happen on almost every one of our teams. Um, you know, it, it, it affected different people. It affected people differently. Um, and I, 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 mean, I go back to thinking about that group going in and how crushing that was because they were so they were in such a high spot. They had, they had gotten through the preseason. We were, we were back. I mean, they were back in July. You know, we were back. We were moving. We were having great workouts. Kevin was incredibly high on his team. He was like, God, I mean, like we're in a good spot. I love the way we're starting. You know, it was, and then all of a sudden, they just have it. Boom. Uh, you know, freshmen really took it pretty – that they probably had it a, a more struggle than anybody else. I think Jahari really – you know, I, you talk about some of the guys that I know were, um, were dealing with how hard it was to have to kind of shut down. You're already away from home. Now you're going to a room for 14 days. You, you know, your food's being delivered. It's just not a lot of contact. Our guys did a great job. We had – you know, we had – our staff psych, uh, psychologists, you know, doing Zoom calls with them if they needed it. We had our own coaches doing multiple Zoom calls a day. We had strength and conditioning workouts via Zoom so they could do it in the room. Academic advisors were meeting with them on the, via the Zoom. I mean, it was just a full-on effort. And men's basketball, you're right when you say it was fortunate that it was just that one. You know, but there were starts and stops throughout the year where other teams we couldn't play in because there was maybe a they, – they were on a pause. or and that was a challenge because you're so up for this game and then all of a sudden you're not – you know, it was just – emotionally it was a challenge for all of these guys and uh on the women's basketball side too they had three pauses i mean that that was really rough for them because i think some of those losses they suffered were coming out at pauses and those were some of those losses that really hurt them as a bubble team last year so uh yeah it, it had an impact it had an impact mentally uh and physically on all of our student athletes and as we're talking about now basketballs it was uh, it was pretty um significant Brian, Brian, we graduated the same year. There's no way me and you could have handled this at 18, man. No, nah, I'm telling you, I, I, you're right. I mean, I actually remember, I think one of our first teams to go on pause was men's soccer. In fact, it was men's soccer. And I never, I've never forget it, actually, because now I'm thinking about it. I'm remembering the whole process and learning contact tracing and, and all this stuff that I was, I was kind of – and really, we couldn't have gotten through without the Tony Testa of the world and all of his staff in our sports medicine office. But we're sitting there, and I'm in all these meetings learning contact tracing, and we're talking to these kids. And I'm like, you know what, let me – let me reach out to some of these kids myself, just like let them know we're thinking, of, can we help them at all? And I'm sending emails out and I get an email back from a men's soccer player and, and this kid's from overseas. And he's like, you know, could we, could we get on a Zoom call? And I'm like, absolutely, sure, no problem. So I get on a Zoom call with the kid and he's just like, you know, he's, everyone's been great, it's so great. You know, I, I appreciate all the support we're getting, but like, do you, like, I just, how are we gonna do this? And, and that was just like, I'm like, 
well, I mean, what do you mean? He's like, well, I mean, I just, we got to get back out there and play soccer now in 14 days. And, you know, do we start over? Is, is our season over? Are we now, are we now, because we had a couple of kids get COVID, are we not going to be able to participate? Like, just like really basic, like questions anybody would probably have, but he was just, he'd been in a room for so, like seven days at that point. And it, your mind goes racing. You don't know what's happening. You know, you're from another country already. Like, I, again, I don't want to dramatize it, but it was it was really you saw it with these kids, and you saw it when they went into it. You saw it if you took did a zoom halfway halfway through it, and then you saw what they came out. You know, it took them a while to readapt themselves. You know, you think it's fourteen days, it's two weeks. What's the big deal? But two weeks in one room, not going anywhere, not having any interaction with another person. It it's not fun. I can't, I, can't, I never. I, by the way, I was very lucky. I never had COVID. I never had quarantine, but a lot of kids did, and and um, and it was a struggle. All right, Brian. So you talked a little bit before about the schedule decisions that happened early on in the season. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to that, right? So sure. nobody really had a firm grip on how the schedule was going to play out during the non-conference conference portion of the season. Okay. Tournaments are being canceled. Games are being played in bubbles up at like Mohegan Sun. And some conferences even scrapped the non-conference altogether. Yet here's Seton Hall, and you guys take a completely different approach. In the span of seven days, you guys play four games in four different sites that include The Rock, Rhode Island, Omaha in that neutral game against Oregon and then travel out to Happy Valley to play Penn State. And in his post-game press conference after the loss to Georgetown at the Big East tournament, it felt like Kevin spoke as if he had some regret relative to that decision and the way that they scheduled it as a team. So here's my question. When the schedule was made on the fly, was that an autonomous decision that you guys gave Kevin to make and his staff? Or was that something that you guys all sat down strategically to discuss Pat Lyons and the, and the entire organization. So I remember, it was, I remember this. I mean, this was as we were learning how this was going to all shake out, and then NCA was coming out announcing when the season was going to start, and we already managed to now learn we're shaving off the first two weeks. I'm sitting there with a pretty simplistic viewpoint, and I'm sitting there with Kevin and Kyle Smythe, who is uh, uh, our director of basketball operations, and Jimmy O'Donnell, who handles a lot of our logistics for travel and things like that. And the four of us are kind of sitting there, and I'm like, well, why don't we just cut the first two weeks off of our season and just pick up for when the season's supposed to start? seems like a pretty simplistic view and why wouldn't that make sense? Right. And that's just, it was a little, little, little bit probably silly of me to think that, but I'm like, well, that just seems clean. Right. You know, like why we lost our first two weeks, let's just get gone. And I think everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense. And then within probably the first few hours of the scheduling chaos, you saw every team was just blowing up their schedule. Everybody. It was just starting from scratch. Everybody was starting to call people saying, we're not going to be able to play now. I got to reschedule this game. I got to move this. I can't do this now. People were saying, I can't use my home arena because they won't let me host a home game, or especially if it's an off-campus arena, whatever it might be. There were so many different things popping up. Schedules are completely blown up. I mean, it was literally like crumpling up the piece of paper, throwing the trash can, let's start over. And you're starting over in a pretty limited time frame to put together what, a schedule that would normally take several months. You know, you got to do it pretty quickly. Um, so I think Kevin and I remember we, we were talking, and Kevin was like, well, listen, I want to I challenge him like I always like to challenge him, and that's Kevin's philosophy. I love that philosophy. Um, I fully believe in it. He's like, they want to play games. You know, right now we've been practicing longer than we've ever practiced to start a season. You know, we're tired of practicing. We, we, we want to start playing. These guys are itching. You know, so I immediately started looking at different opportunities that were popping up. And I'm telling you, opportunities were popping up. Uh, it would it could be a dozen a day. And I'm telling you, as an AD, and I again, I've been an AD for four years, but at my two locations, yeah, do I get involved in scheduling a little bit? Sure. I'll dabble. I'll get a phone call from, from like, a, you know, a promoter that's trying to put together a game at the garden or something like that here and there, or an MTE that's looking to see if we want to partake in it. 
and or maybe another AD might call and say, hey, listen, we'd like to try and form a thing. You know, let's connect our coaches, stuff like that, simple stuff. But at the end of the day, the, the coach has their, their schedule. They're putting it together. Kyle Smythe and Kevin Willard are going to put our schedule together, which is great. They'll run it by. We talk about it. We'll review certain things. I was getting calls, probably just as much as they were getting calls, about different tournaments that were being created, a new MT that's popping up. We're going to get TV. We're going to get this. There's so many moving pieces. It was sheer chaos. I will never forget it. It was one of the most unique experiences I've ever had in this business. And, and anybody probably has had it, just watching how the scheduling was done. Wasn't there like a UCLA rumor on the table at one point? There was. Oh, I remember that. Too. Yeah. I, you, you could probably, there probably were 50 different teams that at one point we were probably looking to play last season. That's how extensive it was. UCLA was definitely in the mix on one of them. There were so many other ones uh, from mid-majors to majors. Um, and there were locations abound that we were looking to go. Um, and back looking at our situation, we knew we had Walsh. We could play in Walsh. We had to play in Walsh. No fans. We got it. Could we play in Peru? Very thankful we have good partners at Prudential Center. We had to be, we started negotiations with them saying, listen, if we're going to play, then we can't. We're not going to have fans. We know we can't have fans. We don't really want to pay the rent. You know, can we work out some sort of deal where we at least cover some costs, but we can make it work? Because we felt, and Kevin felt good about this too, and so did I. Like, listen, we're going to get these games on national TV. That's always important for our program. It's a big-time arena. You know, we knew the arena wanted to have something happen in it. So we, we've said, listen, we can host our games in Prudential. Let's try and do some games in Prudential. As many as we could, as long as it didn't really hurt us financially or anything like that. And we came to a great arrangement at Prudential Center was able to bring some workers in. So we really all helped each other, which was great. Uh, and they were phenomenal partners throughout this process. Uh, and we were just trying to schedule games on the fly. We, a unique situation because we're scheduling now. It's We got to figure out what the devil's schedule is. We got to figure out what this is. We didn't have anything at the time. We were the first thing. We had like the Prentice Center at our disposal. So every date worked. It was kind of unique. Um, but yeah, we got to some, you know, we. you mentioned the point about Kevin at that Georgetown press conference, which I remember well. And you know, I, yeah, I mean, maybe you could look back and say, I think Kevin probably would even say maybe he, he might have been a little aggressive in some things and, and this, that, and the other thing. But he also knew what he was trying to do and he knew what his team felt. He, he felt he thought his team needed. I don't know if he would have done it any differently. I truly don't think he would have. I think he still would have gone about it the same way. And I, I think yeah, maybe when you're looking back at the end of a season that that Georgetown was close, Georgetown game was down near the end there. It, yeah. You're going to say to yourself, you know what? Maybe we did a little too much. Maybe we shouldn't have gone and played Oregon and Omaha, or maybe yeah, we should have. That might have been whatever, the one that I would have put you know? back on, right? That but, but again, a little bit, but. we knew that we could get a game against a Pac-12 team we wanted to play, and we didn't have to go all the way to Oregon. So yeah, yeah, we, and we know Omaha. Yeah, there were there was all these ways. They were play. coming off of a pause too. I think we were going to catch right. them, right? Right. It, it, right. Just didn't, it just didn't work out. Um, all right, let's fast forward. So now we get to the end of the season. It's announced that both the men and the women's team are not selected for the NCAA tournament fields. Both programs ultimately decline NIT invitations. You know, was that decision that was made, or sorry, was that a decision that was made collectively by the coaches, administration, and players? And what were the ultimate I factors that led to the teams not deciding to participate? The ultimate factor was the, the, the feedback we got from our student-athletes. And Kevin and I on the men's side sat down and spoke and said, listen, you know, what, do you, what do you think? What do you think? I, I told him how I felt. I said, but at the end of the day, we both said, how do our, how do your, how do our guys feel? You know, and he went and he had a good talk with them. Tony Bazell did the same on the women's side. And really, I think the feedback we just got was like, listen, we're we're a little fried on this right now. You know, we knew if we did the NIT, we were going to have to go get into quarantine again, get down somewhere early and go sit and, you know, and hope the whole thing. Both teams had come, you know, women's, you know, were really playing hard towards the end. So were the men to try and get in there because they thought that they could get another, you know, win or two in some cases that we would get in. 
And I think there was just a real crash from that, you know, you know, having that loss. And at the end of the day, we didn't see the value in going and being in the NIT. And, and I'll tell you another factor is we, we, um, I'm, we're so, I love the big East. I love the camaraderie we have in this, this conference. And I spoke to several ADs at teams that were in the same situations we were, uh, namely St. John's really kind of all talked about how we were going to handle it. Cause I think we all kind of, we had a unified approach to, you know, if St. John's goes, does that, how does that look if we don't go, you know, and we wanted to make sure our, our guys understood that. Um, and in the end of the day though, it was a super easy conversation with every school. Everyone was like, you know, I think we're all kind of fried and nobody was going. And, and then we saw the Louisville's of the world weren't going to go. And it, we, we understood that this trend was kind of going throughout the whole college basketball scene. Pandemic, no pandemic, always turned down the NIT. It's been since <laughs> 1950 since we did anything there. Don't take it, Brian. Let's 1953. Right, yes. yes. Thank you. <laughs> the last person that saw a game that went well over there was just well into his 80s right now. <laughs> you know, so Mike brought up the name, image, and likeness rule earlier, but that's not the only major rule change out there. You know, the transfer portal and transfer eligibility has flipped the game upside down. You know, the rule now allows for a one-time transfer and immediate eligibility. Combine that with all players not losing a year due to the pandemic season. And now you've got this thing that looks like it's free agency in pro sports. You know, some programs have lost anywhere from six to eight players from their roster due to players leaving. Now, this has been a, a benefit for Seton Hall. You know, we've seemed to have lured three potentially impactful transfers along with Miles Kale and Bryce Aiken returning for an extra year. So in the short term, Seton Hall fans are super excited about this. But is this ultimately a good change for the game and for Seton Hall specifically? Uh, I mean, listen, we talk about the world is changing. I think I forgot to list transfers, but yeah, that's the other big piece of it. We talk about how this, the landscape of college athletics has changed. Yeah, I think ultimately it, it was, again, it, it was something that was going to happen. Um, I think I'd rather embrace it than not. Um, will it, could it be a challenge in some cases? Absolutely. We could, but, but I will say that in the early going, if I look at our programs, both our men's and our women's programs, uh, I think we've done such a nice job in terms of building and providing the experience for these student athletes where they want to stay, you know, um, and, and we've, I think so far we've been able to make the transfer work, transfer market work in our favor. Now, this is going to be a, the next couple of years of evaluation on how this whole transfer situation goes. Uh, I think we're looking at this, I think as, as I look at it from my seat, we're going to see tweaks and, and different things happen along the way on this transfer situation. I think next couple of years where it goes from here, I think we had, we had to go down this road. Uh, it's, you know, we're in a world where student athletes rights are at the, at the forefront and, and rightfully so. And um, this makes the most sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Do, does the, is the, is the criticism of calling it a transfer the, uh, the free agent market? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, I get it, but it, it gives them the flexibility and the right to go where they should go. And, and, and that makes sense. And there are stipulations that are going to be on there. As, as I know, you probably know the, the background of it. You can transfer once, you know, you could do, you know, you'll, they're going to try and minimize the waiver situation that exists. So I think we're going to, it's going to be a wait and see how this really goes right now. We're seeing a lot of, I mean, what are the numbers in the transfer portal now? It's like, it was like 17, 1800. It's like, I know. Oh, yeah, it's, it was getting close to that. It might be a little shy of it, but uh, you know, again, it was just growing because the baseball seasons are ending and the softball seasons are ending. And now those kids are going in. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, but 
we'll see how this how this progresses. And right now, I think we've been able to make it work to our favor. That's for sure. Well, I, I can't blame eighteen-year-old kids for changing no. minds and looking for other yeah. things, but. You know, this spring, players weren't the only ones on the move, Brian. You know, coaches are moving as well. Yeah. Tony Skin has taken his talents to Columbus yeah. and accepted an assistant spot with Ohio State. Grad assistant Brandon Hall has moved up the parkway to Fairleigh Dickinson. You know, congratulations to Coach Hall for moving up. And and even Grant Billmeyer was in the running for a Central Connecticut State head coaching position. So with all this in mind, you know, does the loss of Coach Skin due to increasing assistant coach salaries at the Power Six uh, schools create a cause for any concern here? No, no. I I honestly, Tony Skin, we're going to miss Tony. Tony was fantastic. Uh, You know, tremendous guy. Had done a nice job for us recruiting and and as an assistant coach, obviously. You know, these are things that are going to happen. Uh, you know, he's going to a football five program. It's certainly a school with a lot larger resources, a lot larger of a budget, probably the largest budget really in college athletics or one of the, um, and I got where he, what he wanted to do. We understood that. Uh, it's going to give Kevin an opportunity to bring somebody new onto his staff, which I think he's close to figuring that out. And, um, and we get that. And Brendan Hall, we, this is what we wanted for him. You know, we were trying, we wanted him to find a job. We, I mean, we were really doing everything we could to just kind of keep holding on to Brendan. I mean, Brendan Hall was uh, I, I think the world of Brandy's going to get a bright. He's got a real bright future in this business. Uh, tremendous individual, and I'm so excited that he got a, a chance to go over and, be, and get a spot um, at, at FDU. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just the nature of the business, though. I mean, I think you're thinking, you're seeing it a lot more. Uh, I think this year than any other year. I think there's been, you know, if you specifically you look at how many coaches are stepping away from the game, or you know, even look at ads that are starting to move away. And you know, again, college athletics is changing. If you've been in the business so long enough. You might not want to ride that next wave, you know, so uh, you're seeing a lot of that change. But uh, but, yeah, I think, you know, coaches moving up. I mean, that's that's the name. That's part of the game. You know, that's how kind of how this works. And, um, you know, I, we are competitive in our where we what we and uh, how we um, our pay our assistant coaches. So I'm very comfortable in, in what, and we're going to find another great replacement, another coach to put on Kevin's staff. So. So speaking of which, it's been about a month since uh, Tony took the Ohio State job. It's been that long. What's the uh, what's the timetable on this? When can we expect uh, an announcement? I would think pretty soon. I would think pretty soon. Kevin's done a nice job. He's brought some good candidates in. He's been going through the process, um, and 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 we're, we've been talking about it. So I think I think in the near future. I, I can't put an actual time frame on it. I'm not Kevin. I he's you know he, he's uh, he's he's going back and forth on a couple of different things and he'll figure it out. All right, Brian. So we appreciate all the time you've given us. Last question to kind of wrap this up. And this one's got yeah. a little personal for me, right? And okay. for a lot of fans actually out there. So the Seton Hall Rutgers rivalry game, the Boardwalk Classic, it's back on, right? Great news for both programs, but especially all of us fans who love the rivalry. But I got a small issue here. Jerry okay. Carino, who covers the program or covers both programs, put out the following tweet with the breaking news, right? He goes, credit Steve Peichel for putting the interest of Jersey College Hoop fans first here. The series has sold out four straight times and with both programs on good footing will continue to be an appointment event. I saw it pumps you all up, but I, I maybe I'm reading this in, into this the wrong way. Are we to assume that Seton Hall's administration don't deserve the same amount of getting the game back on track? <laughs> I'm so happy we got this game solved before I actually came on this podcast because I could only imagine the question I'd be getting. Um, ah. Well, listen, it's Jersey, boys. This is a political state. And my man, Jerry Carino, who I love dearly, my fraternity brother from my college days, 
he's got to play the politics game. He covers both teams. You know, he's got to he's got to be political, and he's got to maybe throw a little love to the uh, to the state school when he has to. I don't know. I don't think it's worth reading into. At the end of the day, we were we had a good good dialogue back and forth with the Rutgers. We were very you know very clear and listen. We thought, felt the game should be played at our place. It's a rotating series, and it didn't get to rotate last year. And they agreed. So all in all, it worked out great. You, I you, cut you out all got of this us. school, Steve, Kevin, myself, Pat Hobbs. It worked. You got this school that finishes seventh in its conference, the best finish that they've had in forty <laughs> years. First time they made it to the tournament since we were, since before we were in college, Brian. And we're gonna pump these guys up like we're afraid of them. Oh, come on, better dead than red. Forget about it. All I gotta say is, every time we have Brian on, he always answers one question: Is eloquent as possible in terms of 80s speak and this is this is his one so good job brian listen i love that Rutgers is, is doing great because you know what this series only gets more competitive and more and better and this is going to be great for all of our fans i think this game's gonna be a lot of fun this year especially now we're gonna have full capacity back in these arenas and i can't wait it should be a lot right, of fun. i'll ask you a fun question there's always yeah. the rumor of do we open up the upper level because if you open up the upper level then you might see that sea of red kind of sneak in like we used to have with Syracuse and UConn back in the day. Do we make it exclusive or do we go for the, the sold out arena? Love the question. Um, I, I, I've, I've been asked it many times already. Uh, our staff right now is focused on making sure we sell out downstairs uh, and it's sold out with as many Pirate Blue members as we possibly can. This is now a plea I'm going to make to all of our Pirate Blue members, all of our Seton Hall basketball fans, all of our alumni, this is the game you don't bring your buddy that went to Rutgers. Don't bring him, all right? Tell him to get his own ticket somehow. You bring the Pirate fans. Stay in blue, because that's where I get upset. I love all these guys that are all bringing, they come to these games, but they're like, oh, I didn't bring my wife and kids. I brought my buddies who went to Rutgers. I'm like, oh, don't bring those guys. They're not going to bring in red to the arena, right? I mean, you're, you're becoming part of the problem. Um, but no, our, our focus right now is let's sell at the bottom. We'll, we'll, we will debate that, I'm sure. Um, but I, I, I completely understand the argument of, listen, we want to keep this as, as focused on as a higher blue crowd as, as possible. And, but, you know, we'll weigh that around what revenue and, and what we can do with it. And we'll, and we'll make that decision when we come to it right now. Let's sell at the bottom. And we're working on doing a private sale to Seton Hall folks. Now let, they just have to do their part and not bring their Rutgers friends. Let the Rutgers fans <laughs> go to the Scarlet Pub in New Brunswick. Stay, stay out of Newark, Rutgers people. It's going to so, be a fun environment either way. So, Brian... Yeah. Before we let our guests go, oh, we God. make them walk the plank. We're going to give you five rapid fire questions. We're expecting five rapid fire answers back from you. Do you Can think I tell you, you're ready? Yeah, I don't. I, I feel like I've I've done this now twice, and I feel like I haven't done that well. So I'm really like I'm like really focused right now. I don't want to let you guys down. I feel like I'm I haven't done as well as I can. I don't think you realize how hard it is to write these questions for a third time. You, <laughs> you start running out of questions to ask him. Well, let's not forget you tried to skirt out on me last time and not ask me these questions. Uh, I had to call you out. True. You think I, yes. <laughs> Ryan's feeling awfully comfortable with us these days, Mike. Right. I'm just saying. I, you know, I was chest. like, I'm getting cheated. I didn't get asked those questions. <laughs> All right. I can feel Brian's chest protruding through the, the Zoom now. I got to oh, knock I'm, him down. I'm so ready. Here, here we go. All right. Question number one, loudest road environment in the Big East. West Virginia. Who was the better? Who was the better team? Eighty-nine finals team or ninety-two, ninety-three Big East champion team? That eighty-nine team to me will always be it. If you could secure a home and home series with any team in the country, who would it be? Michigan. 
UConn rejoined the Big East this past season. If you could bring back one more school, who would it be? Boston College. There's been a lot of talk of like the all-time Seton Hall team. Where would you rank them, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to ask you for question number five, who would be on your all-time Seton Hall men's basketball Mount Rushmore? Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> oh, that's absurd. <laughs> how, do you, how do I do that? Richie Regan's got to be there. Okay. Uh, so I'm putting Richie. Oh, my God, though. No. I'm putting Terry DeHair there. Okay. I feel like Walter Dukes should be on there. I, I would say Walter Dukes as well. Yep. Yep. I feel like you got to put Danny Calandrillo. Ooh, no PJ. No PJ? So I'm not doing a coach. I'm just going players here, boys. You're okay. now messing with me. Bonus question. If you're, if you're going to chisel an extra face on the side of the mountain, I would be number five. I can't. I can't. Now. See, I shouldn't have done that. I just ruined it for myself. I don't know. I mean, I I, I might say Glenn Mosley. Congratulations, Brian. You have walked the plank. And I love the fact that you didn't give in and say Syracuse with letting them back into the biggies. Let them stew in mediocrity in the ACC. Well, no, well I look at, but look at the conference. And I like the conference. I love the small Catholics. I think Boston College is right. that school that comes right. back in. All right. So now you don't got to justify to so me. I like the well, answer. I'm now just now I got to have them justify. We stayed away from this question. Now I got to bring it back for a second. So yeah. like-minded schools, and as much as UConn makes sense from a national media perspective, it doesn't fit the mold of like-minded schools. Now I know they, uh, they they pushed football to the back burner. They can't. They just dropped football, if I'm not mistaken, right? It's so no, they didn't drop it. So it literally is uh, an independent now. Independent now, okay. But yep. so they're putting their, all their eggs back into the basket of focusing on basketball. But still, yeah. when you're talking about private, smaller Catholic schools versus now public state money with UConn. How do you feel about them being back in? It's a tough, it's another tough game to add this, two games to add to the schedule, that's for sure. I mean, you asked, you know, you've heard Kevin talk about his feelings on this. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, listen, I, I wasn't around when that decision was made and I wasn't in that room, but I can see why we would do something like that. I think it, it, it's certainly in terms of our, um, what it does for our conference, it's tremendous, uh, you know, for what the Big East, what, you know, and what what is some of the most important pieces to our conference, the Big East basketball tournament, probably the top of the list, women's basketball, what it does in terms of, you know, bringing that game to another level for us in this conference. Uh, and on the men's basketball side, I think it's uh, it speaks for itself what we're going to get. We're going to get a team that's going to be another one of those teams that can always be in the NCAA tournament, helps us in our Big East tournament you know, atmosphere. Um, so, you know, I get it. And I think it makes sense because um, they were one of those schools that were, you know, they didn't go that route, ACC, all those kids, they things with football. So, yeah, it's different. There's no doubt. I mean, you, you do you do kind of step outside of that like-minded institution. Like, I get where you're coming from. Uh, but I think it's a good ad at the end of the day, and it would make sense. It would it wouldn't make sense not to do it. For the Big East, it's a no-brainer. And Kevin's comments were, you know, sarcastic and playful. But there's always sure. a little That's truth. That's Kevin. There's always a little bit of truth, though, behind those kind of comments. And I think most Seton Hall fans are like, damn it, now you're giving them more of a lifeline to get out of that uh, AAC. They can tell their fan base or they can – go back to their recruiting base and say, you're not playing games against Tulane anymore. You're playing yeah. games now in the Northeast. Your family oh. can come watch you. I, I don't I don't like how this lines up for Seton Hall from that landscape of recruiting. I really don't. And I hate to say it, we already lost one battle already in, in the Sunogo sweepstakes. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, listen, I mean, at the end of the day, if we were going to bring in anybody, though, you're not going to want to bring in a cupcake. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So uh, I get it. I mean, it, it, it literally raises the level of competition for all of our teams because UConn's, you know, really – it's a quality program across the board. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I listen. I, and then Kevin, Kevin is playful in his wording, but he know he certainly there's a reality to that too. It's going to make it more of a challenge. 
Well, Brian, we can't thank you enough for coming on again. We really appreciate your time, especially on a late uh, Wednesday evening here. We wish you nothing but the best for the rest of the summer for you and your family, and we look forward to seeing you next season. Can't wait, guys. I appreciate the time, as always. Appreciate your support, and uh, let's go Pirates. Brian Felt, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle at Pirates. We are also proud members of the What You Expect Network of Podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Deziri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 